Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jay Anelli, and I sold my soul to three demons for greater power. I'm Lorelai Weissel, and I get to claim Jay's soul if he mispronounces a fantasy word. <laughs> I'm Brian Dawes, and I get to claim Jay's soul if Arjun interrupts the cast. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I'm Ashley Barrow, and I get to claim Jay's soul to appease Annie. Wait, what's the condition? You don't just get to claim yeah, it. We've got prior claims. And you told me to. It's a bullcrap deal. It's fair. She is president and CEO. She gets to pull rank over us. I call shenanigans. All right. Just a little bit of news. This week, Ravnica Allegiance previews have started. They started the week before Christmas, so we're getting mechanics and some other stuff. We're going to talk about those cards later on. We're not going to go into them right now. And we'll have passed over Christmas time. So, congrats! We probably know the name of the spring set. Yay! It's probably really awesome, and we'll talk about it when we come back. Yep, we're going to be condensing our previews into a single Flavor Gems episode. So, we're going to try something different and not do and not talk about previews as they happen and just kind of do one whole episode where we go over the whole set, keep it all contained into one episode. Hopefully that'll be easier for everyone to follow, even if it won't be as timely as spreading it out. So we're going to see how that goes. And so Christmas week, we're taking another week off like we did for Thanksgiving. So we'll see y'all in uh, January, I guess. This week, we want to mention... We had just so much stuff released in the last couple weeks that there's just no way for us to fit it all together. Today is going to be our episode on the Children of the Nameless novella, which was released earlier in December. It is a novella written by Brandon Sanderson. So for those of you who don't know who Brandon Sanderson is, Brandon is one of the hotter names in fantasy fiction right about now he has developed his own multiverse essentially called the cosmere where there are a lot of little connections and he has very well-defined magical systems in there it's something he's known for i'm a big fan of his so i'm really glad he was able to do a magic book if you really enjoyed this story and you want to see some of the other things brandon has done he's done quite a few like little novellas or short stories that might be a good place to start. Or if you want more recommendations, you know, hit us up on Twitter. He's got a lot of great fantasy fiction there. Some of it is epic in length, some of it is much shorter in length, but it's all of it's a lot of fun. And we're really glad that he had the opportunity to write a magic story and that things worked out in that when the franchise team reached out to him, he was able to fit this novella into his schedule because he's got a very very packed schedule of writing brandon is a huge magic fan in addition to being a big name author right now so he was super excited to be approached for this project and this whole story was something he had had in his head for years now so he brought it to the franchise team and, and they workshopped it into something that they could write um Earlier this month, he did an interview on Weekly MTG, so we're going to link to that. Go watch that. It's very interesting. They talk a lot about what went into writing this story, 
kind of what his approach was, how many cubes he has. Brandon is a huge fan of cube drafting. Definitely check that out. Get an idea for the person who wrote this story before or after you actually read it, because I think that's always nice when you get to know the author a little bit and then get to read their work a little bit and see the aspects of their personality that really shine through the work. And this story, we should note, is very much a Brandon Sanderson-style story. So it was really great. He got a lot of room to play around with. And so with that, let's jump into Children of the Nameless. So this whole story takes place in a remote region we haven't seen before, in Kessig, which is the forested area of known Innistrad, in a region known as the Approaches specifically in a small town called Verlaisen. Verlaisen? Verlaisen? Get your soul. It's Verlaisen. It's a real German word, so it doesn't count. It's not a fantasy word. It's a real German Fine. word that means abandoned. Got him. In Verlaisen. What was it again? Just give me the right one. Verlaisen? Verlaisen. The V's in Germans have more of an F sound, so it's more Verlaisen. 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 In Verlaisen. There is the bog, which is this mysterious bog, for lack of a better word, that protects the area and imbues them with a certain amount of power. No one is quite sure what the bog is. Two years ago, around the time of Avison's imprisonment or release, somewhere in there, two young girls from the village began to manifest powers. Those girls were Tasenda and Willia, and they've had both a curse and a gift, which they believe are from the bog. Tasenda could not see during the day. She's completely blind during the day. But at night, she can see, and she has song magic, where she can protect the town with her music. Willia can only see during the day. At night, she's completely blind. But she is like a master warrior. Her martial prowess is off the charts. Even as a young woman, she's better than most Cathars. So the story begins with Tasenda, who is guarding her village as she usually does at night, except tonight is another night that these beings called the Whisperers appear. Now the Whisperers, she isn't entirely sure what they are, but they're immune to her magic. And so Tasenda, they, oh, they keep coming whenever Tasenda can't see. So just before dusk, they come and they finish off Tasenda's village after several days of them coming every night and harvesting more people. So Tasenda can finally see everyone's dead. She hears someone while she's still blind, and she believes it to be someone known as the Man of the Manor. Now, the Man of the Manor also arrived about two years ago. He killed the previous Lord of the Approaches, who was... It is directly stated to be a Markov vampire. Is it? Yes. Oh. It was an offhand comment in the middle of the novella. Oh, I missed that part. I thought it was just implied that he was a vampire. But So he kills a Markov vampire who was the previous lord of their region and who was a little too happy to drink the blood of the women of the approaches. So Tasenda sneaks off to the manor and sneaks inside after observing outside a bunch of devils hanging out around a barrel of rotting apples. And, you know, there had been rumors that the man of the manor had consorted with demons, and this finally confirms it for her. 
She sneaks inside, narrowly avoiding a demon that looks like a woman, that is a woman, and sneaks upstairs into the man of the manor's bedroom and hides in wait. The man of the manor walks inside, and she jumps out with an ice pick and stabs him. That's when she realizes stabbing him in the chest with the ice pick has only annoyed him. It ruined his favorite shirt, though. Yeah, so this is when we learn about Davriel Kane. Now, Davriel Kane is an assumed name. We don't know what Davriel's actual name is. His first name might still be Davriel, but that name isn't his actual name, he mentions. He's on the run, and we'll get to why in a second. He uses a lot of aliases. Even within the story, he goes by Davriel Greystone to some religious figures in the Church of Sigarda. Davriel has bound a number of demons in his service. The two most important ones right now are Miss Highwater, who is the first female demon we've seen in a very long time. 24 years. Yeah, ever since Lady Orca, way, way back in the day. But we'll talk about that some more in a minute. Crunchnar, who is a warrior demon, essentially. Davriel, we learn, has uh, some unique abilities and also a very unique attitude. He's very foppish. When Tessenda jumps out of the closet and stabs him, he's very upset that his shirt was ruined. However, he had ordered 24 identical shirts just in, case, just in case a scenario like this happened. And just in case all the villagers died. So it turned out to be good forethought. And there's an amusing little exchange between him and Miss Highwater where Davriel goes, Really? We have that many? That seems excessive even for me. And Miss Highwater goes, Well, it seems like in hindsight it was the best option. They are absolutely delightful, I think. Before we go much farther in the summary, this story, more than most I have read, has had such fun characters. And if you know nothing about Magic of the Gathering, I think this story is still going to be a blast to read. Yeah, it is. It is excellent. It's one of the best stories that's been out recently. It's standalone, but it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of lore connections that we'll talk about later. So the other funny thing about Davriel is that besides his foppish attitude... He is like the anti-Liliana. He like mocks necromancers. He gets insulted when Tessenda believes him to be a necromancer because he pulls out a preserved head in order to communicate with the dead spirit of someone who came to kill him earlier. He also mocks like the local fashions. He makes fun of all the belts that the Innistrati wear. (laughs) Um, But he loves the hats because he's, you know, complete fop. (laughs) He didn't say he loves the hats. He said they have great hats and repeats it throughout the story when trying to convince some of his demon partners to maybe work for the church sometime. (laughs) But think of the great hats you'd get to wear. (laughs) He said the church has the best hats. So the funny thing about the belts is Davriel clearly didn't think this one through because The Innistrati need all these belts because they need ready access to tourniquets at all time. You never know when, like, a werewolf's going to tear off your arm. You know, what might have been silly having three different belts on your arm. Well, all of a sudden, now you can tighten up one of those belts and you're not going to bleed to death anymore. Someone eats half of your body and then your pants don't fit anymore from all the weight you lost. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Let's talk about something else that makes Davriel unique is that he has something in his mind 
that he calls the entity. The entity is what heals him. It keeps him alive. It keeps demanding that he use its power. And we're left in the dark as to what the entity is. <laughs> at the beginning, at least. We'll get, we'll get to what it is in a second. It's not the chain veil, Brian, but it is very similar. Yeah, it's a similar kind of thing. Uh, it's a very similar dynamic between Liliana and the Raven Man, I would say. The other thing you should know about Davriel is that he doesn't really have magic of his own, except for the ability to pull spells from other people. This is a really cool dynamic for him. It kind of reminded me of like Dak Faden, who got a lot of his magic from his psychometry, top touching objects. Davriel instead pulls magic directly from other people's minds. And so he holds the spell inside his mind and can use it. But after the first time, or if he's held on to it too long, the effects start to weaken. So for him to go into like battle, he needs to prepare and grab a bunch of spells from different people. But it also means he has to like improvise a whole lot, which made the story much more interesting than if he just slung magic at the bad guys the whole time. I really thought it made for requiring the hero, and I'm using quotation marks around hero, requiring him to think more strategically, be more clever than simply just getting in duels the whole time. I feel like his card would make more use out of Nicol Bolas Godfarrow's card than Nicol Bolas does. Nicol Bolas Godfarrow's plus two is target opponent exiles card from the top of his or her library until he or she exiles a non-land card. Until end of turn, you may cast that card without paying its mana cost. If that doesn't feel like Davriel's ability, I don't know what it does. As far as abilities that current Planeswalkers already have. Brandon talks a little bit about this in the interview on Weekly MTG, the kind of card-based ability influences to Davriel, and he cites both Thoughtseize and Ganti Lord of Luxury. The idea that Davriel can reach into someone else's mind and take a spell out of their mind, but it also hurts him at the same time. He's beleaguered by headaches throughout the story. And then the Gantish idea where he can steal a spell from someone and use it against them using his own magical resources. It's a unique thing that we haven't seen in a Planeswalker before, especially with the idea that he has no spells of his own. So like Jay mentioned, Davriel goes through the story and the only spells he uses are spells he takes off of other characters in the story, which means as the story progresses, we get to see all the spells he has access to, and you can kind of check off where he gets to use those further in the story. And if you're keeping track, you can know which spells he actually has access to and try and predict how he's going to use them to get out of his current situations. There were some very clever uses that I don't think we want to spoil in this podcast. You should definitely go read the story for yourself. It's free on the Magic Story website. But there were some very clever things that happened with this ability. I should also mention very quickly that Davriel was very much a black-aligned hero. Brandon mentions him as thinking of him as more like black-blue. And also he did like an Ask Me Anything. And he mentioned in there also that he was very inspired by like the Kamigawa block. I've talked before about how good those novels are, despite the card set not being that great. The Kamigawa block, Tetsuo, no, it wasn't Tetsuo. Toshiro. Toshiro Umazawa was a black-aligned hero back in that block, 
And so Davriel is kind of in the same situation. His motivations aren't heroism. He's motivated because Tessenda basically tells him that if she thought he was the one who killed the whole village, everyone else is going to think it too. And that means adventurers off to make a name for themselves or Cathars or whoever are all going to just keep coming to his door and trying to kill him. And it's going to be really annoying. <laughs> Which I think was just the best possible motivation for a character like this. He just doesn't want his leisure time disrupted, so he decides to go and deal with it now. Yes, he's a black character who is very ambitious, but his ambition isn't for power or destruction or omnipotence. It's ambition to be left alone and not annoyed by other annoying folks. It is still a very mono-black motivation, and Brandon was very conscious to make him likable, but not heroic, and just succeeds so well. Davriel is someone who sounds like he's just so fun, but like doesn't care about anyone else that much. He's so selfish, but still has friends. It's very interesting. And it, it's a very interesting take on a Diabolist. Friends is a very uh, aggressive thing <laughs> for what he actually has now. So our joke at the beginning of the episode was largely a riff off of Davriel's quote-unquote friends here, which are the demons he's made various deals with. And Davriel, unlike Liliana, not only reads the fine print, but puts in fine print of his own into his demonic contracts, so that he has essentially tricked all of his demons into serving him for unfulfillable conditions. So, for instance, Miss Highwater has to... Um, seduce him. Has to seduce him to get his soul. But he just keeps giving her other tasks and letting her do things that aren't her primary seductress mission, but instead other things she's good at because he noticed how good her contracts were. She's essentially an accountant. A good one, too. They have a fun back and forth where she's like, oh, I thought I was going to seduce you easily. And he's like, maybe I don't like women. And she's like, oh, that's never stopped me from seducing people before. <laughs> and he's like, well, maybe I just don't think you're very attractive. Maybe you're not as hot as you think you are. And she's like, <laughs> have you seen some demons? They're really ugly. I'm definitely one of the hottest demons. Even Crunchnar, that dumb Ophi warrior, is one of the hotter demons. Some demons don't even have hands. They just have hooks. <laughs> yeah, that's the best one. Which was a deliberate dig at Grizzlebrand. Because we learned Miss Hightower was locked away in the Hell Vault. So, cool little Easter egg detail there. So, Miss Highwater, also we should note, is a great pun off of Come Hell or Highwater. Crunchnar gets Davriel's soul if he lives until 65 without dying, which of course gives him the incentive to keep Davriel alive, except Davriel had already died once, therefore the conditions Crunchnar can never fill. And so it's things like that, it's great. The Riddle Demon he makes a contract with, the riddle was for, like, a random rock he saw on another plane sometime. The contract was if the other demon ever figured out what that what he was thinking about, he would get his soul. And Miss Highwater also mentions the fact that it wasn't actually a riddle, because the way he worded it was, if you can tell me what I'm thinking, you get my soul. But he didn't specify when he was thinking about it, he hypothetically could have changed it at any given time. 
No, it was specifically mentioned that he wrote an answer in the contract. I thought it was a great throwback to The Hobbit and the the what's in my pocket that yeah. Bilbo does to get the <laughs> ring from That was the um, exact Gollum. thought that I had when I saw it. Because, you know, oh, give me a riddle. Okay, what am I thinking about? And it's just like some random Rocky saw one time. And Miss Hightower makes fun of that demon that he, like, kind of likes serving human masters and, like, probably doesn't actually want to guess it anyway. <laughs> uh, she says, oh, he's always seems at his happiest when he had a master to serve. Back to the plot. Tessenda, threatening Davriel's leisure time, successfully gets him motivated to go investigate. When they go back to the town, they discover that the bodies are all still alive and that the spirits have just been taken from them and could potentially be restored. So we've got a hook here that Tessenda feels like she can save her, her family and her friends again. They go to investigate the church and discover that the priest in the church had been stabbed from behind. And so that someone inside the village or who was inside that church turned on everyone else and allowed the whisperers in because the church's magic successfully kept the whisperers out despite Tessenda's not doing that. But while they're investigating the church, what do you know? A group of Cathars comes to investigate, and they are all of a sudden under attack. There's a great exchange here where uh, I think Crunchnar is the one who says, I've never been on this side of a church assault before, as they barricade themselves inside the little chapel. (laughs) They end up letting a number of them live, and because all these people came, Davriel decides to go to the Prioris at a nearby monastery, who's kind of like the religious area for the region. Is there anything we want to mention about the church assault before I move on? Holy ground obviously isn't a thing, because the demons just entered it without a problem. Oh yeah, that's probably because there were no priests left to like reinforce the magic. There was a church diabolist there who was naming them one by one and gets to Miss Highwater. And what was Miss Highwater's real name? Voluptuara. <laughs> So they spend the rest of the novella making fun of her real name because she chose it because she knew she was a seductress demon, but it was so on the nose that Davriel can't help but make fun of it the whole time. <laughs> yes, Voluptara Feaster of Men is not a great or subtle or classy name at all. And she realized it later and uses the excuse, oh, I was only 12 days old. I was dumb and, and reckless and young and I'll go by Miss Highwater now because that's a much better name and way less embarrassing because (laughs) I will talk about more of this later. But yes, that is a super embarrassing name. So during this assault as well, Tessenda learns that the world isn't quite as black and white as she believed. She's come to, if not like the demons, to at least empathize with some of them. And so as some of the ones she empathized with are slaughtered, without any of the church folk even questioning, you know, why, or stopping when they're telling them that, no, we're not the ones who did this, you know, she begins to learn, oh, maybe it's not as simple as the good guys and the bad guys. They head to the monastery to confront the Prioris, and there's some fun exchanges in there that we're not going to get too much into here. We've skipped a number of, like, minor plot points and things. This is kind of a broad overview. Just because this is so good, you really need to read it for yourself. And it's a whole 120-page novella, and we only have one episode. Yeah, right? (laughs) 
they go in and there's a nice reference to Ulgratha in here where Davriel is essentially out of spells, but this young and cocksure priest is challenging him, believing him to be evil. And in order to scare him off, he uses an inkwell spell to write Old Ulgrothin all over the walls, which looks scary and demonic, but I think is really like a recipe or something. It's something stupid. If they no, it was definitely a recipe. So it's, it's something like monumentally stupid if they actually knew how to read it. But the script was so intimidating looking, it looked scary and demonic. It was a recipe for buttered scones. <laughs> and if you don't remember, Ulgratha is the plane that Homelands took place on, where the vampire Baron Sengir ruled over a tiny habitable space on a dying plane, the kind of original gothic horror experience in Magic the Gathering. So it's a fun little nod to a shared world within Estrad, where they, they have similar themes, and the kind of scariness of Sengir himself. And what I want to know is how Davril knows, because that is weird. He went there at some point. Which means Ulgratha is still around, or at least in the recent past, because we should note Davriel through some math clues. You have to you have to be able to subtract sixteen from sixty-five to get his age, which is forty-nine. So Davriel is a little bit on the older side for one of our modern planeswalkers, but he is not an old walker because we know, based on other clues with these deals, he couldn't lie about his age like that. So we know that he was born after the mending. I had actually suspected for a little bit till I saw the, like the math there that he might have been a pre-mending walker. It's interesting. We know Ulgroth is going to die one day, probably soon. It's running out of mana, but he got there at some point before it died, which is interesting. This monastery, I should note, is devoted to something called the Nameless Angel. And we'll talk about this a little more later. But I want to be really clear up front, the Nameless Angel isn't the same as the unnamed, suspected black-white angel that Avison killed, like, over a thousand years ago. The fourth Archangel sister. This is explicitly not that character. But this Nameless Angel brought an artifact to this monastery called the Sealand Stone, which uh, I think was cute. I don't know if that has a meaning in German. Or if that has like another another meaning, or maybe that that was her name, Ceiling. My assumption was it was a play on the word ceiling. Yeah, I thought it might be just a pun. As in a stone that would seal dark energies inside it or something. So it was something that could quiet spirits and let spirits move on to like the the eternal sleep. The blessed sleep. The blessed sleep, thank you. Davriel dismisses it as like a third-rate artifact, and he's confused as to why, you know, an angel would personally bring it all the way out here. The answer for that comes later. It's not a very powerful enchantment, but it is an important one. The sealing stone is kept beneath the monastery in a much older section, where there are a bunch of crypts where all the dead are kept, and there are a lot of, like, secret entrances and exits. Namely, so that you can escape if all the dead people come back to life for whatever reason, and also to keep people out. But that'll be important a little later. Davriel is satisfied with the Prioress's answer, namely that she couldn't keep all these adventurers from going to try and kill him. They had sort of a deal where 
he gets left alone in exchange for him not like murdering all of his people. (laughs) which is pretty good since like half the leaders of these places especially in Kessig are like werewolves or vampires or some monster or another so Davriel overall is a pretty good lord over the approaches yeah all he demands is taxes and food and shirts and tea and flogs people when they don't deliver on time which by Innistrad standards is pretty progressive so Davriel is pretty satisfied that the Prioris isn't behind this He decides that they should head to the bog to try and investigate further. Basically, he's deduced at this point that the Whisperers can't penetrate the church wards by themselves. They're not going to get in closer to who the traitor was at the monastery. So they leave and go to investigate the power of the bog. Before they leave, Tessenda goes to see her sister, who was killed earlier, before the story began. So they head to the bog, only to find that the bog's power has mysteriously vanished, and they're attacked by whisperers. This time, they learn the whisperers are the actual souls of the people who've been taken by other whisperers. So the reason Tasenda's village was attacked night after night was every time the whisperers came and took more spirits, and then they'd have greater forces the next night. Well, this time they're attacked by people from the monastery who must have been attacked immediately after Tessenda and Davriel left. These new whisperers aren't affected at all by Tessenda's power, whereas earlier in the night they couldn't get at her. She was left alive. And they begin to run. Davriel denies his entity who demands that he uses the entity to power his spells there's a whole thing there where we learn davriel had claimed it from some old man we do learn a little more history between davriel and the entity that lives inside his head it's some kind of powerful ancient thing that he ripped out of somebody else's head into his own and used to potentially conquer and end a war on some other plane. So he has this mysterious backstory where he used the entity's incredible power to like destroy an entire army and then looked around at all the dead bodies and was like, oh no, this is not at all what I wanted. And all these other mysterious people start hunting him for the power of the entity so he's been on the run this whole time. It's kind of like an anti-Obnixilla story, whereas Obnixilla reveled in the death and destruction that his campaigns brought, and Davriel was the exact opposite. He saw what he was doing and was trying to run away from that. Like I mentioned earlier, he's not a black-aligned character who seeks the power to dominate. He's a black-aligned character who seeks the power to be left alone. It puts him in conflict with the entity in his head. This is just an incredibly interesting backstory because he talks about how he claimed his throne, but he had to spend so much time defending the throne after he claimed it that he didn't have time for the things he actually wanted to do, which was all the leisure activities he wanted to go along with it, which is why he wants to be left alone now. He knows he doesn't want that kind of power. Which is why his little reign and this little barony and the boonies on Innistrad is perked for him. He's getting 
a little bit of position. He's getting the privacy to be able to take as many naps as he wants without drawing too much attention normally. The solder of a village underneath his care kind of disrupts that, which is, again, why he's on this whole quest to begin with. But then he discovers something very interesting. So we don't know the source of Tessenda and Willia's power and curse. So Davriel starts poking in Tessenda's head and gets blown back into the carriage and gets a tremendous headache that makes him want to take a nap. And the entity in Davriel's head says, Yes, yes, good. We have found the thing that I brought you here to find. Davriel's like, no, I came here of my own free will. And the entity's like, oh, did you now? Because there's a second entity here. And I think part of it's in that little girl. Bam! Surprise. Tessenda's powers kind of come from a second entity, which they suspect is in the bog. It blows open this whole story because they start to suspect Tessenda might be subconsciously the one who has sabotaged her own town and is commanding the Whisperers and killed her own parents and sister. And there gets to be a very negative point where nobody really knows who to trust. And then they start getting chased by the Whisperers again. And they start almost killing everybody in their little ragtag group of humans and demons. And they really don't have any options. So they go back to the prairie for what is essentially going to be the final showdown because Tessenda has an idea that the Salem Stone might be more than meets the eye. It's just a feeling that is inside her. So they grab a bunch of horses because their carriage gets wrecked and they head back to the prairie and it's just surrounded by the whispers. They go down to the room in the Salem Stone and there's a figure down there and it turns out to be Willia, Tessenda's twin sister, who we thought was dead. And there's a running joke through the whole novella about this tea that Davriel really likes because it dulls the pain of his headaches. And so he's trying to find more of it, and people keep not having it, and he keeps not being able to get it. But there's a thing that happens if you take too much where you go into a sort of comatose state where it looks like you're dead. Because there are a bunch of farms for this tea around the town, you learn that Willia has accidentally killed her parents, and it awoke the other part of the entity that she and her sister share in her own head to kind of unpack the power of the bog. The bog is this mysterious ancient force tied to this second entity that has spread its power throughout the people of the Approaches and is now trying to pull them back because the Church of Sagarda is a threat to its power and the Church of Avicen was before it. The faith in the angels saps power away from the bog and has stored it in the Salen Stone in the basement of the Priory. So Willia smashes the Salen Stone and attempts to bring the rest of the bog's power back to the bog by killing everyone in the approaches, which started with the people of Ferlazen. So she attacks Davriel, Miss Hightower, and Tessenda, and Davriel uses one of his shield spells that is barely working, 
and then uses a temporary banishment spell, so kind of a flickering spell in, ter- in magic mechanical terms to flicker Miss Highwater away from the purging light that Willia is capable of manifesting because she was training to be a Cathar. That's when Tacenda realizes, oh, hey, you know what? There's this weird feeling inside me, and it sounds kind of like a song. And none of my songs worked before, but this feels like something different. And she follows this feeling to another room with another secret chamber, and she finds the body of the nameless angel nailed directly into the stone a year ago, which was when all the angels started going crazy on Innistrad, so another little timeline easter egg for the people who are familiar with Innistrad's story. And one of the other minor characters they met earlier in the story was forced to slit the angel's throat. And so they've kept this angel locked away in the basement, which is pretty embarrassing for a church. So Tacenda is overcome with sorrow as Willia and the Whisperers bear down on Davriel and almost suck out his soul. But then Tacenda starts singing a different song, a new song of joy and happiness. And this kind of all tied to her powers to kind of manipulate emotions. And this song of joy, rather than the song of warding, celebrates the people of her town and the feeling of all the Whisperer ghosts as they kind of remember who they are causes them to melt away and get sucked back into the entity's power inside Tacenda. The entity is split between Tacenda and Willia and has a desire to become whole again. And the power of the song of joy that she is singing, fueled by this encounter with the nameless angel, allows her to draw the entity and Willia's soul out of Willia's body. And whereas her part of the entity gets pulled back into Tacenda, Willia's soul just kind of dissipates and disappears and doesn't get to join the rest of them and kind of the theme on you know she made the choice to lose her way and that's kind of her punishment is that her soul doesn't get to join with the souls of the rest of the town which Tacenda can now hear inside her head and experience Tacenda becomes fueled with the full power of the second entity and Davriel the entity in his head says this is your moment while she is confused and weak you can steal the second entity can become part of us and you can become all-powerful it's exactly what i've wanted us to do the whole time and davriel's like you know what sometimes the heroic thing to do is nothing and so he lets Tacenda embrace the power of the entity and then she flash vanishes and davriel's left alone in the bottom of this monastery And the ghosts of all the people of the town who could still come back to life, come back to life. Tacenda's parents have been dead too long. There's like a time limit of a couple days, I think they said. A bunch of townsfolk come back to life. All the priests and the priorists come back to life. And then Davriel goes down to the basement to pick up Miss Highwater as she poofs back into existence. To the embarrassment of all these priests, because she's a hot sex demon. (laughs) Um, who just like appears in the middle of their basement the entity is so pissed at davriel and like doesn't know what to do and davriel's like well that's your problem you jerk 
I'm going to go <laughs> back to being the lazy lord of the manor. And that's pretty much how the story ends. So there's a lot of great stuff here to talk about from a meta level. The seal and stone, the problem for the entity in the bog was that the seal and stone was claiming souls that were infused with the bog's power for the church. So they weren't being returned to the bog. What the bog was doing is imparting part of itself to the souls of the people of the approaches. And then those experiences all came back to it when their bodies were returned at the end of their life. And so the seal and stone and the church were siphoning off those souls and had gotten so many that the bog was significantly weakened and tried to manifest itself in a person, but got split between the twins, Willia and Tessenda. So that's how this whole thing started. I assume the seal and stone was made out of moon silver because it's functioning kind of like the hell vault or any other sacred relic of the Church of Avison and now Church of Sagarda which was also mentioned. A lot of little Easter eggs if you like Innistrad world building. One of the really great Easter eggs there was, if you stop and think about it, to send us song magic. Song magic has a history with Innistrad, just a little bit, because Soren's original appearance, his magic was song magic that he called like rot talk. If you haven't read In the Teeth of a Coomb, don't bother. <laughs> don't bother, but he has, he has song magic that he uses. So the entities themselves are really interesting. Oh boy. They're very similar to, if you read any of Brandon Sanderson's, they're very similar to the shards. They are world souls, essentially, of dead worlds. Of ancient dead worlds, collapsed and focused and manifest within people. So like the idea that the entity can power up Davriel's spells is that it is a plane's worth of power and mana and energy that can fuel his spells and share that power with him, which is frightening. That is, yeah. we've seen what happens when someone like Nyssa pairs up with Ashaya and Zendikar's world soul and the kind of power that it can manifest there. We've seen the kind of power that can manifest from the power stone that contains Sarah's realm that powers the Weatherlight. That allowed the Weatherlight to do all kinds of crazy stuff, like plane shift and go really fast and can talk <laughs> to Tiana and can almost cure Arvad's vampiric curse and maybe told the Cathedral of Sarah to create Tiana in the first place. That power stone that contains an entire plane is like eldritchly powerful in ways that are hard to comprehend for even normal magic users and the entities are a lot like that and brandon mentions that he has an idea of how the entities were created and we know there's at least two there might be more we don't know he'd like to tell the story someday and i hope we get to hear it because wow this is cool brandon mentioned that davriel's seems to be more black aligned and that the bog was essentially more green aligned he also mentioned that the entities were inspired by the M15 Soul of cycle. So just note, these aren't like an entire world, but the remnants of a world. So like for Davriel's, it might be the black mana that was left at the end of whatever happened to this world. Or, you know, like Sarah's realm, it might have been an artificial, Sarah's realm was an artificial realm aligned with white. So it's, it would be a white entity if it was a similar kind of thing. 
there's so many questions. We don't know if each entity is the remnant of a single plane or if they are different shards of a single plane. So, like, we don't know if it's, like, the green and black aspects of one world separated and condensed or if they're, like, the black essence of an entire world condensed and then the green essence of a whole different world condensed. Like, we don't know. It's so mysterious. I love it. It's very cool. And then there's that mysterious group hunting Davriel. There are at least three people hunting him. He believes they're hunting him, at least. I'm pretty sure they're hunting him. He's been on the run for years, so it sounds like they've been hunting him for a while. Which would mean that they're planeswalkers or beings that can move between planes. I don't know. The world soul thing opens up a whole lot of questions. Could be the consortium. It's not the consortium. It's not someone we've heard of before. It could be a group like the Consortium, though. It absolutely could be, yeah. And then Tessenda disappears, but we it's left deliberately vague whether or not she ascends as a planeswalker. The text makes it sound similar to ascending as a planeswalker, but it doesn't mean that's necessarily the case. Just disappearing does not make you a planeswalker. The baby from the Demir story was not a planeswalker in Guilds of Ravnica. Niv-Mizzet was not a planeswalker when he disappeared in the original Ravnica block, even though people speculated for a decade that he was. So just because she disappeared doesn't mean she's a planeswalker. And this is something Brandon talks about. He intended her to become a planeswalker and shoot off to another world. That's not in the text, though, and it is explicitly ambiguous. So if a future creative team wants to make Descenda a planeswalker, that option is available, but maybe she just kind of infused herself with the land of the approaches. Maybe she exists as a ghost now somewhere, a, a or a, I guess a collection of ghosts. An avatar. Maybe she returned to the bog. Like, there are a lot of possibilities for what happened. Her final fate is ambiguous and mysterious and leaves an opening for a future story with her either on Innistrad or somewhere else, maybe. And this is a, a point where Brandon mentioned he's not sure if Tessenda and Davriel are planeswalkers. He's not sure if they even have sparks. He posits within his own world building that it might be that the entities allow people to planeswalk without needing a spark because they are the material of worlds. Which, I think, A, is dangerous ground and... Uh, keep in mind that it is also like not confirmed either way. This is still kind of Brandon's headcanon, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, Brandon is very careful that what he says about what he was thinking writing the story is not word of God for the story. It's not canon. Correct. So it's not canon that the entity allows Davriel to planeswalk without him having a spark. But Brandon admits that in his thinking, he wondered whether or not that was a possibility. And again, if it's something that creative wants to run with sometime in the future, make it canon, then the potential's there. What I'll say for Tessenda, because she absorbed all the souls of the people who had been returned to the bog, it sounds very similar to... Now I'm blanking on his name. What's the goblin from uh, Slowbad? It sounds very similar to wow. Slowbad's situation. Jay, you forgot a goblin's name. I know, What is right? wrong with you? It's 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 Christmas. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Slowbad didn't have his own spark, but he absorbed all the souls of the world, which included someone who had an unignited spark, and absorbing all that power made him a planeswalker. 
So if the creative team decides they want to go forward with Tessenda being a planeswalker, she might not have been a planeswalker herself, but one of the souls that the bog had absorbed might have been. So that's another way to get around it there. Yeah, there's a lot of weird metaphysical stuff, which is typical for Brandon Sanderson's story. We also get some name drops, proper names, Cabralin and Vex, which are locations that Davril mentions that he has been before. And we don't know exactly what those are. Biren Boer pointed out that Cabralin is actually from Rorica's Tale, which is the first magic story ever. So oh, it is actually another plane. That's interesting. And it's a reference all the way back. Wow, that's fascinating. I asked in the AMA if Vex was intended to be a plane, and Brandon said, yes, it was intended to be a plane. I thought he he mentioned that it was intended to either be a plane or a location on a plane. Yeah, it could, it could go either way. I thought he left cause... it kind of ambiguous for Vex, which makes sense because it's literally called Vex. <laughs> <laughs> it's very vexing, yeah. So yeah. Oh, so Cabrillon is a plane. That's interesting. I would have to go back and read Rorica's tale to confirm, but it is a name that has appeared before. It's at least a known location somewhere in the multiverse. That's a deep cut. It's the kind of deep cut only Beer and Boar would have noticed. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> We're just impressed with that. We are some of the Forthoses on the planet who know the deepest cuts, and Beer and Boar's just on a whole nother level from everybody else. He's one of my favorite people. Oh yeah, his blog is great. If you aren't reading Multiverse in Review, you really should. The esoterica that he knows beyond even what we all know on this podcast is phenomenal. And not not that you're a worse Vorthos for not knowing the weird, obscure depths of magic lore, but there is so much magic lore that if you are the kind of person who enjoys finding the lost corners from 25 years ago... This is the fandom to be in to dig up that yeah. stuff. It's part of the reason why I've gone back and read a lot of that pre-revisionist stuff recently over the past year. You know, from the Armada comics to Distant Plains. And one of these days I'll actually start reading And Peace Shall Sleep. The novel's been sitting on my shelf and I just haven't had the time to start it yet. Because we keep getting more magic fiction. Not that I'm complaining, but this story, Children of the Nameless added so many cool things to Magic Canon, from these metaphysical mysteries to the character of Davriel. Christ, I want to see him again and again and again. Like, he is so fun. He was so enjoyable to read. If timelines work out, I'd love to see Brandon write either a continuation of this story or another one or just anything. This story was so fun. So let's move on to final thoughts. My final thought is... I really liked that Brandon took his deep dive into world building and lore and brought it to magic. That's the reason like these entities and a lot of the metaphysics of this story are so interesting to me. And if they were interesting to you, you should really read the Cosmere novels because they go deep and you are rewarded for being the kind of tinfoil hat conspiracy Vorthos that we are with magic. Lorelai? Very disappointed that after 24 years, we finally get a female demon in magic. And he made it a sex demon. Like, don't do that. 
for what it's worth, if you are going to have a female sex demon in your story, this story handled that beautifully. It approached it in a tongue-in-cheek fashion and ended up undermining a lot of the female sex demon tropes. Miss Highwater even has a line where she states that it feels really good for her to be appreciated for her impeccable ledger work rather than her seductive talents for once. So if you're going to do Sex Demon, like, this is how you do it. This story is absolutely how you want to do it. But, like, that, this is the first female demon in 24 years, and it just goes to the Sex Demon well. No, why do you do that? I'm very disappointed in that, while still also enjoying the character and enjoying how it was handled. It's just, we don't have many female demons in Magic, so we can do better than this. And we can do more than this in the future. Brian? Okay, my final thought is one, Arjun has not interrupted the podcast this week. I'm very disappointed. You get the littlest amount of my soul this podcast, Brian. Gosh darn it. And then the second part is I'm very interested in the metaphysics of the uh, Diabolists. And the guy who shows up at the church and starts naming off all the demons was very interesting to me. And the fact that Davriel was only able to pull a scribing spell out of him makes it even more interesting to me. So I'm very interested to see more of Davriel and see more of how his magic works. The Diabolist part of his of his magic, I guess, because I know we, we know about the whole drawing spells out of people, but I'm, I'm also very interested to see how his ability to handle demons is represented on a card if he ever gets a card. And Ashley. All right, uh, my final thought is, number one, I'm sorry I didn't speak very much this episode. I'm getting kind of sick and didn't want to speak very much. But I will say that if you enjoyed this novel, which I, or this uh, novella, which I did because Innistrad and Demons is really my jam, and you are one of our patrons, you can join our Ravnica D&D campaign that has now been created by me. We're going to start at some point, and if you liked this novella, you're really going to like what I have created for everyone to play. That is very exciting. And if you would like to get involved in Ashley's Ravnica D&D adventure, you can head over to patreon.com slash thevorthoscast, Everyone who donates to support our show will gain access to our Discord community. We're going to be running the D&D campaign through Discord, so if you want in on that, definitely get involved now. And we just appreciate everyone who has donated and supported our show thus far. So thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.